If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 13. If you're new with us, we've been walking through the book of Revelation for a while, and I promise you, I really do, I promise you that when I started preaching through Revelation, I did not plan on preaching on the Antichrist and the false prophet on Halloween. I did not just happened that way. I didn't plan it that way. God did. So just take from that whatever you will, right? So this morning, we're going to be in the second half of chapter 13. Last week, we covered verses 1 through 10, wherein we were introduced to the first beast whom we identified as the Antichrist. This morning, we will close out the chapter where we will be introduced to the second beast, whom we will identify as the false prophet. And again, these two beasts in chapter 13, along with the dragon, who is Satan, in chapter 12, forms what we called last week the unholy trinity. And we'll see in this morning's passage even more evidence of the unholy trinity, both in whole and all of them, and in their representative parts, masquerading as the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In fact, it is this masquerading sense that's going to get to the very core and the very heart of who this second beast is and what he does. So let's read Revelation 13, beginning in verse 11, continuing through the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of gathering as your people and worshiping you and opening your word that we might be instructed by it and challenged by it and corrected, rebuked, encouraged, and equipped by it. And we pray, Father, that that is what happens, Lord, whatever spiritual fruit you intend from this passage of scripture for 
this expression of the bride this morning, Father, that, that it would not return void and it would accomplish all that you intend for it to accomplish. Pray, Father, that you would give us minds that would focus. We pray that we would be free of distractions in our life and around us so that we might listen this morning. Lord, not to me, but to you in your word. Thank you, our Father, that you have spoken to us in this book. Now make this word alive to us. Help us to understand it, not so that we can simply be smarter about what it says, but so that whatever intention you have for it might be affected in our lives so that we might exist to glorify you even more. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. So just as the, with the Antichrist in, in the first ten verses, John starts here with a description of this second beast, followed by a renumeration of the beast's actions, what it does, and the response of the people to the second beast. Uh, and, that, and then he concludes with an exhortation to the church, just as he did um, in the first 10 verses. So the description is found in verse 11. There's just one verse here that, that describes this second beast. And the first thing that we note is, is that this second beast comes out of the earth, not out of the sea. Jewish apocalyptic literature, extra-biblical, non-canonical Jewish apocalyptic literature, that is, speaks of two fantastic beasts uh, that together represent evil in the world. One is Leviathan, a serpent, a beast that comes up out of the sea. The other is Behemoth, a beast that comes from the earth. In fact, uh, God himself speaks to Job about those two beasts in the later chapters of that book, Job 40 and 41. And so this forms part of the Old Testament background for John's vision here in Revelation 13, where we have one beast coming up out of the sea, whom we identified last week as Antichrist, and one beast this morning coming up from the earth, whom we will identify as the false prophet. And like Leviathan and Behemoth, together they represent evil on the earth. And so just as that first beast, as we concluded, was a means by which the power of Satan was expressed and exercised in the world, so it is with this second beast. The second thing that we notice about this second beast that John describes for us in his vision is that it seems, at least at first, to be much less intimidating and much less scary than the first beast. You recall the beast from the sea, right? Ten horns, seven heads. Excuse me, ten heads, seven horns, right? Ten heads, seven horns. He said that it was like a leopard, It had the feet of a bear and the lion of a lion's mouth and that it had a mortal wound that was healed. It was a daunting description, a a scary description nonetheless. 
But this second beast from the earth, we're told in verse 11, only has two horns. And those two horns are like the horns of a lamb. Now, I didn't know that little lambs could have horns. But apparently some do. But they're very, very small. And they're like little, little nubs on the lamb's head. And sometimes you can't even see them. You have to feel for them to know that they are there. And so while this second beast has horns, they are so inconspicuous that we might not even know that they are there. We might say that, that they're kind of undercover. The first beast, he's got ten heads and seven horns. But this second beast, he's just got two horns like a lamb. But he's got the voice of a dragon. You see the disparity between those two things. Perhaps this suggests that he speaks for the dragon, but I think it also shows us that he's two-faced. He is duplicitous. From one perspective, he looks like a lamb. But the closer we get upon closer inspection, we see that he's really a dragon. Now, that's all that we're told about the physical description of this second beast there in verse 11. But again, remember, this is all figurative and this is apocalyptic. This is not prophetically telling us that one day there's going to be a, a beast that, that rises up out of the ocean and that one day there's going to, another day there's going to be a beast that rises up from the earth. In fact, I don't think it even tells us that there will even be a beast in, in the sense of some kind of non-human animal-like monster with multiple heads and multiple horns. Again, this is figurative language. And it shows us that the closer we get to the end, the dragon, who is Satan, who was unsuccessful at stopping Jesus, is going to go after the church. And the two primary means through which he is going to go after the church are the two beasts. One that comes from the sea, who is Antichrist, and one that comes from the earth, who is the false prophet. And we said last week that the, the Antichrist, or the, the spirit of Antichrist, as, as John says in 1 John, is already in the world and has been in the world. Many Antichrists, John said, in concrete, historical people, and empires. All of this is figurative in that sense, but they all point to an Antichrist who is to come, an Antichrist who is to come, who will be a person who blasphemes God, is worshiped by unbelievers, and who opposes and attacks the church. So, in the same way, the second beast, who, who likewise uh, is a person, um, through whom uh, is a means by which God, the, uh, the, the power of Satan, uh, I mean, the power of Satan is expressed. But instead of the power of Satan being expressed through open opposition and violent persecution of the church, like the first beast, here the power of Satan is expressed in the second beast through deception. So instead of open opposition and violent persecution... The strategy of this second beast all depends on deception. It's all about deception. And that really gets to the core of who this second beast is. And we've already seen some of that deception 
in that this beast has the two little horns of a lamb, but has the voice of a dragon. He's masquerading as a lamb, but when you hear him speak, you know this is no lamb. So we see the deception. We see more deception as we continue in our passage. Look at verse 12. We're told in verse 12, it, referring to the second beast, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Again, I want us to see this masquerading as the Trinity here, right? This second beast doesn't want the attention. The second beast doesn't want the worship of the earth dwellers, the, the unbelievers on the earth. But he does want the first beast to get that attention. He does want the first beast to receive their worship. And so he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Who does that sound like? It's the Holy Spirit. That's just what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit doesn't want the attention, doesn't, doesn't want the glory and the worship for himself. He wants it for Jesus, the Son of God. And so the Holy Spirit seeks to elevate Jesus, not himself, just like this second beast. And so again, we see this masquerading of the Holy Trinity. Go back to the passage from last week. Where does the Antichrist, this first beast, get his power and his authority that he exercises? Where does he get it from? We're told explicitly that he gets it from the dragon. The dragon gives its power and his throne and his authority, we're told, to the beast. Now, yes, we're later told that God under his sovereignty gives the beast its power, but, but in effect, it is the dragon under the sovereignty of God, the dragon who gives this first beast its power and its authority. Just like Jesus says of himself in Matthew 11, verse 27, all authority has been given to me by who? The Father. And so as Jesus gets his authority from the Father, so the first beast gets his authority from the dragon, from Satan. Similarly, Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16 that when the Holy Spirit comes, he will glorify me, Jesus. That's his job. Just as the second beast serves to glorify the first beast and make the earth dwellers worship him. So the, the dragon, who is Satan, mirrors the role of God the Father in the Trinity. The first beast, who is Antichrist, mirrors the role of the Son of God in the Trinity, and now the second beast mirrors the role of the Holy Spirit in the Trinity. And so again, we see this strategy of deception at work in this second beast. Verse 13, we see another element of deception. Verse 13 says, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. Part of the Old Testament background for this vision is the prophet Elijah in First and Second Kings who calls down fire from heaven twice to, to annihilate the soldiers that were sent from King Ahaziah from the northern kingdom 
and wants to consume the sacrifice to prove the prophets of Baal wrong, right? But he calls down fire from heaven. Real fire comes down from heaven. And that was a real thing for Elijah. It was real fire from heaven that did a real thing. And I would submit to you that this is real too. This is, this is real fire. Whatever kind of signs were shown, it was real. This was real fire, just like, like with Elijah. But it is deceptive because it is not a display it's not a display of good power, but of evil power. And I think we can draw an important principle, principle from this. And that is that just because we see a sign or something, something supernatural or miracle, even if it's genuine, doesn't mean it's from God. Great example here in the passage we looked at last week, the mortal wound, the mortal wound on the first beast. We talked about how last week about how that was a, a counterfeit of Jesus' resurrection. Well, it may have been a counterfeit of Jesus' resurrection, but it was a legitimate miracle. It was a mortal wound. Mortal means mortality, means, means fatal, means... means it, it, it should have caused death, but it didn't. And against all odds and against all logic, it was healed. But that didn't mean that he was the Christ. It meant, in fact, that he was the Antichrist. Same with the second beast. We're told that he performs great signs, even to the point of calling down fire from heaven in front of people. But to what purpose? Look at verse 14. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth. So the purpose of these signs was to deceive the people. The signs themselves were telling a lie. They, they, they were telling a lie. The lie that they were telling is that the first beast is worthy of worship. The first beast should be marveled at, should be followed Look at that. That's what these signs were doing. They were telling a lie about the first beast deserving worship. And, and that is a telltale sign of a, of a sign, no pun intended, is a telltale sign of how a sign is, is, is false and not from God. In that it tells a lie. And it deceives us into believing something that isn't true. In this case, the lie was that they should make an image of the beast and worship it. Look at the rest of verse 14. The second beast deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so the, the second beast here convinces these earth dwellers, these unbelievers, convinces them how? Through the use of signs and wonders that they ought to make an image of the beast. Reminds us of King Nebuchadnezzar, right? That Babylonian king in Daniel chapter 3, who likewise made a golden image of himself and required everyone to bow down to it, including Daniel and all of the Hebrew captives that were there in Babylon. 
to bow down and worship the golden image of himself. That's what the second beast does. He deceives the earth dwellers through these miraculous signs, calling down fire from heaven and all of that. Deceives them into thinking that this first beast is so worthy of devotion and allegiance and even worship that they ought to make an image to him and worship it. It's a pretty powerful deception that's going on here, right? But it doesn't end there. Look at verse 15. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And so now the second beast breathes life into this dead image of the first beast. By the way, again, mirroring the Holy Spirit who breathes life into the the dead carcass of an individual who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, regenerates them, gives them new life in Christ. So now this this second beast is, is mirroring the Holy Spirit even more by breathing life into this image of the first beast. And the image comes to life, the image speaks, and it even punishes those who will not worship the image of the beast. And he punishes them by slaying them, by killing them. And so whoever or whatever the second beast represents, those who do not worship the image that he has the earth dwellers create of the first beast, are slain. So it's a very, very high price to pay for those who do not worship the image of the beast. Just as there was, by the way, for those who did not bow down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had made. They were thrown into the fiery furnace. These are slain. But just as the fiery furnace was not the end of Daniel and his counterparts, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the fiery furnace was not the end of them, and neither will death be the end of these who do not worship the image of the beast and are slain. But we see as we go on that there's also an economic impact and economic cost and price to pay for those who do not worship the beast look at verses 16 and first part of verse 17 and it causes all both small and great both rich and poor both free and slave to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark now i would submit to you that the way john writes this i think it's very plain that not everyone receives the mark not, not, not everyone receives the mark because we're told that there are some who are not able to buy or sell. Why? Because they don't have the mark. That's the determining factor. So when John says there at the beginning of verse 16 that it causes all, the second piece causes all to receive the mark, either all doesn't mean all, and I would suggest to you that several times in Scripture all doesn't mean all, and in this case, Perhaps all means all those of these diverse groups, both great and small, both rich and poor, both uh, free and slave, as he says. So in other words, there's, there's no partiality. There's, there's people from both of those groups, all of those extremes. 
Or we could read the word cause all. It, it causes all. We could read that as it requires all. Or to use our vernacular today, it mandates all. In other words, it is a, it's a mandate to receive the mark, but not all receive it. Some refuse. But those who refuse to receive the mark, whatever it is, and we'll talk about that in a moment, they are excluded from participating in commerce. They're excluded from the economy of the day. They can't buy. They can't sell. We can only imagine what that ends up meaning for them, to be excluded from that. Now, I want to set your mind at ease because I would, I would suggest to you that there is a significant amount of, of troubling teaching uh, regarding the mark of the beast that is out there. First and foremost, there's nothing here that suggests to us that it is possible for us to unwittingly or unknowingly receive the mark of the beast. Now, some perspectives teach this about Revelation, that the mark of the beast is some kind of secret mark that we might receive by accident, a barcode on our hand, a chip implanted on our forehead, or as we've seen and as we've heard, a vaccine that we unwittingly allow ourselves to receive, not knowing that it's actually the mark of the beast. There's nothing here to suggest that whatsoever. Instead, as I understand the text and other places as we walk through the book of Revelation, as we see this referred to over and over, that it's something that we either accept or we reject, this mark of the beast. It is not a passive, secret thing. Additionally, I think this is important for us to note here. It is my very strong belief, and it's okay to disagree with me. It really is. I know that many of you have disagreed with me many times in our study of Revelation, so this won't be any different. But it is my strong belief that this is speaking about marks figuratively, not literally. And, and, and I, I come to that conclusion because I see a very clear parallel between this mark of the beast and the sealing of the 144,000 back in chapter 7. Remember those? Those who receive the seal of God on their forehead. We're going to see them again in the next chapter, in chapter 14. The seal of God on the foreheads of the believers in chapter 7 was not a literal seal, right? And when we went through that, we talked about how it was figurative and that it represented God's ownership and God's protection of his people. That's what that seal represented in this apocalyptic vision. So what it represented was that God owns them. God protects them. In the same way, this seal here in chapter 13, this mark of the beast is likewise figurative. And it represents not God's ownership, but Satan's ownership. And in chapter 19, we'll see that they are all met with God's wrath. As the first beast and the second beast and all those who receive the mark of the beast and all those who worship the image of the beast. And so we see this clear delineation beginning to be formed as we continue to make our way through the book of Revelation between two groups of people. 
There are those who, are, who receive the seal of God, and there are those who receive the mark of the beast. Both groups have people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. And both of these groups have people from those who are great and small and rich and poor and free and slave. There is no partiality in either group. The only thing that separates them in the book of Revelation is whether they have the, the seal or the mark. One group has the seal of God, the other has the mark of the beast. And consequently, those who have the seal of God are subjected to the wrath of the beast. And those who receive the mark of the beast are subjected to the wrath of God. So it's one or the other. Either we receive the seal of God or we receive the mark of the beast. If we receive the seal of God, we get the wrath of the beast. But if we receive the mark of the beast, we get the wrath of God. And we'll see this line of demarcation, if you will, continuing all the way to the very end of the book of Revelation. But John closes his vision here by talking about the mark more and, and what it means. Verses 17 and 18. So, so that no one may buy or sell unless he has, referring back to the mark, unless he has the mark, that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, there has been an enormous amount of ink spilled trying to figure out what is, what is meant by the number 666. Books, movies, you name it. And I can tell you that even within our tribe of evangelical Protestant and Baptistic theology, there is absolutely no consensus whatsoever. So I'm sorry for those of you who are right-brained and you just need an answer. Uh, I'm not going to give you one, sorry. There's just no consensus, and so I'm not going to bring consensus to where there is none. Some say it's part of a Hebrew cipher. And in this Hebrew cipher, uh, each letter of the Hebrew alphabet is, um, corresponds to a particular number. So as long as you uh, had that cipher and you knew that number, you'd be able to figure out what a number meant in Hebrew. And while this is certainly true, the Hebrews did have a cipher like this. It was called gematria. Um, and they used this. We see this in extra-biblical Hebrew literature of the day. They would use this as a cipher, as a code way of describing things. The problem is we don't have that cipher. But even if we did, there is an enormous amount of trouble figuring out exactly how we use it in each case. Because you have to take the original language of whatever name or whatever word you're starting with, whether it's Greek or Latin or Syriac or whatever, and you've got to translate that into Hebrew. And if you know anything about language translations, proper names of people do not always translate letter for letter into other languages. Besides the fact that when you get to Hebrew, you only have consonants, no vowels. So that creates another level of complexity. But once you get through all of that, 
then you can determine which numbers respond to which letters and use that. Now, according to this method, there, there, are, there have been a veritable plethora of suggestions as to what 666 refers to in the Hebrew gematria. Um, I would suggest that the most likely of them using this method is Nero. Nero was the emperor of Rome some 20 to 25 years prior to the writing of this book, the writing of Revelation. But there are far too many conclusions using this method for us to, to reach any kind of consensus and have any degree of certainty. In fact, I thought it was very, very comical. Uh, D.A. Carson, in his lectures on the book of Revelation at Trinity, Trinity Evangelical Divinity, said that if you gave him the Hebrew gematria in 20 minutes, he would convince you that Hillary Clinton was the false prophet. So, and you could probably say that for any celebrity or any person in politics today. So ultimately, that's unhelpful. Uh, others have suggested that 666 is kind of the counterfeit of 777, which is like perfected perfection, the number of perfect perfection. And so this would be the counterfeit of that. This is perfected evil. And while that may be, ultimately, that is of no practical help to us at all in trying to identify who this false prophet is. But again, the, the, the number, not the false prophet, but the first beast, because the number here is the number of the first beast. It's the number of the Antichrist. And we concluded last week that the Antichrist, or Antichrists, plural, are the means by which the power of Satan is expressed in the world through concrete, historical people and empires and powers, both past, present, and in the future. So that's the first beast. But what about the second beast? Who is he? He doesn't have a number. He doesn't have a name. Or at least not in this passage. He's given a name later in the book of Revelation. Not so much a name, but a title. Three places in the book of Revelation, we see a title given to the second beast. I'll read one of them. Revelation 19, verse 20. This is after Jesus comes back and defeats them, and this is what happens then. And the beast was captured, and with it, the false prophet. There's the name. There's the title. With it, the false prophet, who in its presence, in the presence of the first beast, had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So there it is. There's the title of the second beast, the false prophet. But note the definite article, the false prophet. This same word, the same Greek word, uh, pseudoprophetes, uh, literally, the, the, the pseudo-prophet, the false prophet, is the same word that we see uh, used elsewhere in the New Testament to warn of false teachers and false prophets in the church. John himself, when he's writing his first epistle, says this in 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe that every spirit, do, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. So just as we saw John say last week that there are many antichrists that have gone out into the world, so now he says there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. Peter warns of this in 2 Peter 
He says, but false prophets also arose among the people. Talking about the people in the, in the churches of Asia Minor there. Just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. As we read through the book of Acts, we see many demonstrations of false prophets and false teachers uh, there in the early church. Jesus warned of this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So we see that deception again. But Jesus also speaks of this towards the end of the book of Matthew in his Olivet Discourse. And there he's pointing to the end of the age, to a time of great tribulation that he himself says, such as as the world has never known from the very beginning. And he says there in Matthew 24, verse 11, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And then Matthew 24, verse 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so while there are, according to John, according to the Bible, false prophets in the world today and always have been, false teachers, these all point to a day and time when there will be a great false prophet who will arise and will lead many astray to worship the first beast, the Antichrist. And so I, I believe this passage that we're looking at today, the second half of chapter 13, I believe it to be a very, very stern warning to us of false prophets and false teachers who will seek to infiltrate the church in our day and in the coming days to seek to undermine the faith once delivered to the saints with the aim of persecuting and killing Christians. And so while the, or- the exhortation to the church with respect to the Antichrist in the first 10 verses of this chapter, the exhortation to the church there was endure, persevere in the faith, right? End of verse 10. Endure, persevere in the faith. Here, the exhorta- exhortation with respect to the false prophet is a call to wisdom, discernment, and watchfulness. As he says there in verse 18, this calls for wisdom. So I, I want to close with just three applications to this passage. You could come up with a number of them, and I encourage you to do so in your base groups. But just three of them that come to mind for me that, that can bear fruit in our lives and our walk with Jesus today. Number one is to know the scriptures. Know the scriptures. The best way to spot a false teacher is to identify his false teaching. And the best way to identify false teaching is to know the truth and study the truth. You've probably all heard the illustration of how they train Secret Service agents to identify counterfeit money. They don't train them by showing them all the myriad of ways in which money could be counterfeited. They train them by having them study the real currency over 
and over and over and over and over and over and over again. And once they finish that study and they graduate from it, they do it again. And they study the, the, the minute details of our currency and how the watermarks fit just so and how the fibers fit together and, and where, where all of this, all the little pieces of our currency that, that we just take for granted, we don't even see. But they do. Why? Because they study it so intently. So that when counterfeit comes up, they're like, oh, I see it. I see it right there. In the same way, church, if we are going to spot heresy, false teaching, false prophet, I would submit to you it's probably not going to be by, by seeing whether or not they have signs and wonders and, and great big things that happen. Because Scripture says they can do that. I've been to parts of the world where forces of evil do real things. And it's scary. I would submit to you it's by knowing the truth and being able to spot heresy. And the only way we're going to be able to rightly do that, church, is if we know God's word. We read it. We study it. We memorize it. We meditate on it over and over and over and over and over again. How well do you know God's word? We can all grow in this, right? We all need to grow in this. And I, and I, can't, I can't overestimate and, and overemphasize the importance of the local church in the process of us coming to grips with a right understanding of truth in God's word. You see, it can't, it can't just be all of us out there on our own interpreting what the scriptures mean in all of these obscure places. Yes, I understand the priesthood of the believer. And we have within us the spirit to be able to interpret that. But left to our own devices, left to our own indwelling sin, without the correction of brothers and sisters around us, without that leveling effect of pastors and elders who have given themselves to the teaching of God's word, we're likely to get it very, 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 very wrong. And we see it all throughout church history where that has happened. So we desperately, desperately need the church in this process of understanding the scriptures. But my exhortation to you is to know the word, study it with other believers, memorize it, saturate your lives with it. And when you see something, whether it's in here or in a Bible study, or outside of here, that doesn't seem right, don't give yourself to it just because a lot of other people do. That's how false teaching takes root. That's how false prophecy takes root in the church. Instead, question it, challenge it, hold it up against the Word of God. Bring it to your pastors and elders. Let them uh, take a look at it. And if it doesn't align with Scripture, get rid of it. Toss it out. Know the scriptures. Secondly, and this is something that we've reiterated before, before but, it, but here it is again. Trust that God is still at work. Remember that God is 
sovereign, even when the power of Satan is exercised, either through uh, violent opposition to the church by, by way of the Antichrist or, or maniacal deception on the part of the false prophet. God is still sovereign, even when the church is opposed, e- even when the church is persecuted. God is still sovereign. Remember the divine passives that we saw in the first 10 verses? Well, we see some here as well. Verse 14. And by the signs that it, the second beast, is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth. Verse 15, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might speak and cause those who wouldn't worship the image to be slain. So the false prophet is allowed to do these things, allowed to perform great signs, allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. And I I would ask you, who allows it to do this? It's God. God is the only one who has the authority to allow this beast to do this. So like we said last week, uh, however we wrestle through the concept of, of God ultimately being sovereign over evil without himself being evil, however we wrestle with it, we have to wrestle with it and then come to the two conclusions. Number one, God is sovereign. Without question. And secondly, he's good. He's good. We've got to have both of those things. A God who is sovereign and not good is a monster, and a God who is good and not sovereign is not God. He's in control, no matter how bad it gets. And there is no measure of evil in him. He is only good. So there's good news here, right? Because that means that the power of Satan whether manifested in violent opposition through the Antichrist or maniacal deception through the false prophet, the power of Satan is not unaccountable. The the power of of Satan is, is not able to do just whatever it wants to do and go wherever it wants to go. It is on a leash. And God is holding the leash. And he won't let it go anywhere. And he won't let it do anything that isn't part of his sovereign plan. And what did we say last week? Everything that he wills and allows in his sovereign plan is for the good of those who love him, Romans 8, 28, and his own glory. This is why the first beast is only allowed to exercise his authority for 42 months. A long time, it's cut short. And it's cut short because God says, that's it. That's all I'm allowing. According to my sovereign divine plan, we don't have to understand it. He says, that's it. That's all I'm allowing. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful it's not 43 months. And this is why chapter 19 details for us that the first beast and the second beast will be thrown into the lake of fire and burned forever. So when we see the work of Antichrist in the world, when we see the deceptions of the false prophets in the world seeking to to oppose the gospel and seeking to attack the church with its false doctrine, remember, God is still in control. So trust him. Trust him in the midst of that. And then finally, quite simply, make sure you're sealed and not marked. There's only two here, only 
Only two options. Those who are sealed by God, those who are marked by the beast. And when we looked at chapter 7, we said that the seal of God represented those who come to faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope for rescue from the judgment they deserve because of rebellion and sin. And so are you sealed? Have you been sealed by God by grace through faith in Christ alone? Because there's a coming a time, and, and, and this time could come at any moment, where there's only two options. Either we have the seal of God, and we are subjected to the wrath of the beast, but God ultimately and completely, ultimately and, and eternally saves us. Or we have the mark of the beast, and we're subjected to the wrath of God. And we're thrown into the lake of fire with both of the beasts. So which are you? And as followers of Christ, as those who have been redeemed by his grace through faith in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, who are necessarily being formed into fishers of men, we ought to be actively and passionately engaged in God's work of sealing those who are his own which means taking the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the good news that God sent his son to live the life that sinners like us could never live, to die on a cross, to pay the price for our sin that we could never pay on our own, so that those who place their faith in him might be forgiven of their sins and given the assurance that they will spend eternity with him and not eternity in the lake of fire. That is good news. And if we are followers of Jesus Christ, he says, I, I, I behold, now if you're a follower of me, I'm going to make you a fishers of men. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so we ought to be actively and passionately engaged in that work, that God's work of sealing those who are his. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those among us who perhaps have never professed faith in Christ, never walked across the line of faith. Father, those of us who know you by grace through faith, agree together in prayer right now and just ask that you would bring them across the line of faith. Wherever that person sits in this room, wherever they're listening at home, God, that you would bring them to faith in Christ alone. Not faith in their own works, not faith in their religion, not faith in their baptism, not faith in any act of their own, but faith in the grace of God who made a way through Jesus on the cross. Father, we're so thankful for your word. Thank you for the instruction of your word. Thank you for the edification that it brings to us. Pray, Father, that this passage from Revelation 13 will itself help to equip us, the church, to persevere in the faith now and in the days ahead, whatever they may bring. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name. Amen.